here, we are going to be entering into a new study. We're going to be looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha. Um, and we're going to be starting out, in the, if you want to turn there, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 16. Now, we won't go into a whole lot of leading up to what's going on, but um, you may know just a little bit to, to help you out. Um, of course, following King Solomon, the, the Israel splits into two, and you have a northern kingdom, often called Israel, and you have a southern kingdom, often just called Judah. And what we're going to be focusing on as we go through the life of Elijah and Elisha is primarily that northern kingdom. And what's interesting there, the very first king was Jeroboam, and he was a bad king. And you can imagine the king that follows him is bad, and the king that follows him is bad, and the king that follows him is bad. And the king that follows him is bad, and then you get to another king, Omri, and we hear that Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did more evil than all of those who were before him. And so that's Omri. And you think Omri is bad. Wait till we get to know his son, Ahab, who we're going to start to get to know this morning. And we're also going to get to know Elijah. We're going to kind of see a villain and a hero. Uh, this morning, and I think you can probably assume which is which as we get started. Let me read our passage this morning. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all those who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of the Ethabal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and he served Baal and he worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord than the God of Israel, the God of Israel, uh, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is the east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from the brook that I have commanded the ravens to feed you. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and he lived by the brook of Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, would you use it? to feed us, your people. We need you today, and we especially need your word at work in our life. And we pray you would do so. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure you know most great stories, um, have, usually they have villains and they have a hero, don't they? Villains and heroes help create tension for us. And unfortunately, that same idea of villain and hero often plays out in real life, and we see it playing out in real life in our passage this morning. And, and as we continue looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha, we'll, we'll see this playing out. Now, what's interesting is sometimes, and I won't bring any specifics here, but, but sometimes in, in a movie or in literature, there's a surprise villain. 
You know what I mean? It's like the whole movie, the whole book, you don't quite know if they're going to be a villain or not. You think they might be a good person. Maybe they're even the hero, and then it sneaks in and you're surprised. You may wonder why I'm saying that, because we learn right off the get-go that Ahab is a villain, right? Scripture is very clear to tell us that from the very first things it has to say about Ahab. But if you were living during Ahab's day, you might not have been so quick to think that he was a villain. So it might be good for us to think of it. He, he reigns during what we call the Amri dynasty. Amri was his father, okay? And, and that dynasty lasts for 40 some odd years. And Ahab is the, the king during about half of that dynasty. And for the most part, uh, both in scripture, but then also looking at extra biblical sources, sources outside and archaeology and whatnot, we, we, we find that this Amrit dynasty, and in particular during Ahab's time, was a time of actually pretty good stability for the northern kingdom, for Israel. It was a time of a lot of building programs and stuff going on. There were political policies put into place that brought peace, by and large. It was a time of economic growth in the world's eyes. Um, Ahab and those of the Amrit dynasty were, were in some ways, you could see them as like a success. But of course, as we turn to scripture, we see a very very different evaluation of Ahab, don't we? we? We read at first about Omri, his father. He did more evil than anybody else. But then, of course, we read about Ahab in verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He's worse than his father. And his father was the worst. So he's the worst of the worst. And how is that so? We learn in verse 31 what happens. As if it had been a light thing, For him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians. So picture here. If you thought that Jeroboam, the first king, he was bad, okay? If you you thought that he was bad, that's like child's play compared to Ahab. They, they, they didn't know evil like Ahab. And, and just think back to, do you remember what Jeroboam did? In, in chapter 12, we read that he took uh, two calves, golden calves, and, and he builds a, places them so that the people of Israel can go and worship these golden calves and no longer go down to Jerusalem. Well, that's pretty bad if you're an Israelite king, a king who's supposed to be following Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, right? We could mention many other things that Jeroboam did, but the point here is that Jeroboam's evil, even Omri's evil, is like amateur hour compared to Ahab, okay? Ahab is really bad. And what what makes it so bad? We, we, We learn of this marriage with Jezebel. Now, we'll talk a lot more about Jezebel in future weeks, Uh, But for the purpose this morning, it's mainly about a political alliance that goes on. Likely his dad, Omri, sets him up um, with Jezebel. And it's for a political alliance because Jezebel is from Sidon. That's Phoenicia. And what are the Phoenicians famous for? Uh, For their shipping and, and, and being a great port cities and stuff. And so with this marriage, suddenly Israel has access to all those great ports of Phoenicia. It's a, a political, it's a great win for Israel politically. And maybe, you know, maybe Omri, maybe Ahab are thinking, taking a foreign wife, what, what could go wrong, right? And then we read back to verse 31, what do we read at the end there? He takes a foreign wife and what? And went and served Baal and worshiped him. Up until this moment, as you're reading through the book of Kings, like 
there's a downward trajectory going on. They seem to be getting worse and worse, and, and there's this constant syncretism. That is, this blending of, of Israel's worship, Jewish worship, and the worship of the people around them, Baal worship, it's just kind of mixing together. Doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But with Ahab marrying Jezebel, things to take, seem to take on a different tone. Syncretism, in a way, it seems to be out. And full-blown Baal worship is in. Okay? We're not hiding anything more. We're going full, full bore. The picture is, you know, Jezebel, you know, he marries Jezebel, and he gets introduced to this, this new god, Baal, in a sense, and he dives in, dives into full worship. Now, who's Baal? We'll, we'll talk a lot more about him probably in future weeks, but he's the storm god. He's the one that the people looked to and relied on for the rain to come, and that was very important in Israel. They relied heavily on agriculture, they, on rain to come, and so that's why, part of why the worship of Baal is so significant. And what did, what did Ahab do? Verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. Part of this full-blown worship is what? What does he do? He builds a house for Baal, the God, right? And what does he put in the house? He puts, a, 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 he, he puts a, an idol, and he builds an Asherah pole to, to worship the goddess Asherah, uh, the fertility goddess, often very closely associated with Baal. So this is bad. I mean, it's, he's just going into full-blown worship of other gods. And if that's not bad enough, we get to verse 34. And 34, it probably kind of throws you off a bit because it almost seems like it doesn't fit in the days of Heel, the Bethel uh, of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn son. He set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. What's going on here? Jericho is, of course, that first city of the conquest, right? And you may not remember it, but, but after that battle of Jericho, you know, when the walls came tumbling down, you don't remember that, right? So after that battle, Joshua says this, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Now Ahab, being Ahab, he clearly has no fear of the Lord in him. So what does he do? He evidently sends Hael to what? To go rebuild the city. Why? Because Jericho would be a relatively strategic city right there along the Jordan, right there kind of as the entrance to the the promised land proper. But it has devastating effects for Hill and his family, doesn't it? As he loses two sons over it. Now, what's interesting here, we're not quite sure exactly what's going on here, to be honest. It could be that Hill actually offers his sons as sacrifices for each of these successive parts of the building, rebuilding of Jericho, which is pretty awful. Um, It could be just, though, maybe even a little more likely, that he learns of these tragic deaths as he goes on building. But in some ways, the point's the same. What does he do no matter what? They keep on. They keep on going. Ahab, uh, Ahab, no no doubt, is in charge charge of this. And basically, by by moving forward and going with this, they're they're saying, Yahweh, who? who? Who is that God? No, no, no. We have no concerns for him. We have no concerns for what he said, even as they come under the curse. Now, 
in my men's Bible study, we're, we're studying through uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is, is uh, basically, it's a series of sermons that, that Moses preaches right before the Israelites enter in to the promised land. And he's teaching them what life is to look like and how they're to live, how they're to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And, but he also, in the context, warns them of something. Hear this. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Maybe you'll see some connections with what we're talking about. He says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn you and your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. It seems like the word of God has already already made clear as to what's going to happen, how things are going to play out given a ruler like Ahab. Okay, God, God, God's already made it clear what's going to take a place. Now, I can just imagine the Israelites, you know, they're hearing this for the very first time from the words of Moses. Can you imagine what they might have been saying? No, Moses, we would never do that. We, we, we would never desert Yahweh and serve other gods. We, we, we've learned our lesson. Can't you imagine the Israelites saying this after they've seen so many wonderful things? Here they are. They're on the heels, ready to go in for the conquest. Yet in our passage this morning, what do we have? We have a very sober warning, don't we? An incredibly sober warning. The the first folks who probably heard the book of Kings were the Israelites as they were in exile, (laughs) no longer in the land. They're in in the days of the exile. And part of what this book of Kings was teaching them is it wanted them to see the devastating effects of sin how devastating idolatry is, how slippery that slope is when you just start dangling over just a little bit into idolatry. And in fact, in some way, teaching the people that God was right, Yahweh was right to send them into exile. But them being sent into exile was exactly what they needed. Idolatry is a very slippery slope. What is idolatry? David Powelson says it this way. He says, when something or someone besides Jesus, the Christ, takes the title of your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. It's when we find ourselves worshiping the things of this creation instead of our creator, instead of our savior. When our heart's affections land on them, these things, these people, often even good things, but they land on these things instead of our great God. Now, as as you read verses 29 through uh, 34, I think we're rightfully, as you read it, you're kind of disgusted at Ahab. You're disgusted at his idolatry about how far he has come. What, What is he thinking? But we need to not just be repulsed by Israel's idolatry. We need to learn to be just as repulsed by our idolatry. Are you? Sometimes I think that we think, or at least we live like, our idols aren't that bad. Do you know what I mean? But we slowly bend our knees to think, but we're not completely bowing down and worshiping them. We, we start our way just a little bit down that slippery slope. We, we, we have, I think, to some degree, acceptable idols in our life. Acceptable ones, ones that are maybe even a little respectable. You know, they're, they're not too bad, right? It's not too bad if I, if I, as a parent, just totally live my life for my kid. 
and every wave of their emotion totally affects me. If my life is totally lived through them, that's okay, right? Well, we are called to parent our children well. We're called to teach them in, in, in the way of our great God. We're called to teach them the gospel and train them up in righteousness. But we're not called to bow down and worship them. Yet I fear the way that they tug on our hearts. Sometimes we do. We are called from, from the very beginning, even in the garden, Adam and Eve were, were placed in the garden to work, right? It's a good thing that we work. But what do we have habits of doing? Taking this good thing and we, we turn it upside down on its head. It becomes all about maybe accumulating as much stuff as we can, you know, try to accumulate as much as we can, maybe. Maybe that's it for you. Or maybe it's because you, you work really super hard just because you desperately want the affirmation of others. You desperately want to be affirmed. And then you get affirmed. And then you, 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 you keep going on for that next time that somebody's going to say, good job. Maybe you work super hard for your own glory because you're really just trying to build up your own kingdom for your own glory. I don't know what, and we, we could go on and ask a million questions. We'll probably be talking about this a lot in this series. But what are the idols of your heart? What things pull on your affections? And what things do you think, well, they're not that bad? Do you have any respectable idols, acceptable ones? Do I even need to say that there are no acceptable idols? There are no respectable idols. And maybe those ones that we treat as kind of respectable, they're kind of like gateway idols. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you've heard of gateway drugs, Right. You know, like you start on a milder drug and then it leads you down a path to, to hardcore drugs. I can't help but picture that with Israel's decline. Okay. As they, they just dabble in syncretism. They dabble in a mixture of worship and suddenly they find themselves in the days of Ahab where things have gotten so bad. We need to be warned. We need to know that as our idols become more and more ingrained in our heart, that if we're not at work killing them, they will kill us. Maybe you know John Owen's famous words, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. How does that take place? How do we even, how do we even where, where do we go from, from there? I can just imagine the Israelites, you know, they're in exile. And they're hearing these stories, maybe again for the first time, or they're hearing it together for the first time. And, and, and they look at the fallen kings. They look at Israel's past and how it repeats itself over and over again, how everything just seems to be on repeat. They, they, they look at, at the people's struggle with idolatry, and then they admit and they see, hey, I have struggles with idolatry too. I'm, I'm still not free of this. It seems hopeless. If we're sinners, aren't we just going to continue to sin? As Calvin said, our hearts are but what? A perpetual factory of idols. I think it's into that, it's in, into these questions that the hero of our story kind of steps in, if you will, and points us to a greater hope. Elijah, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Elijah steps on the scene. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe, that, that sounds impressive, doesn't it? Tell you, think about it for a moment. The 
Tishbite from Tishbe. Of course, where else would a Tishbite be from? It's like saying I'm a, a Savannian from Savannah. You know, it sounds for a moment more impressive, but then you think about it and you say, that, that's just silly. You're just saying the same thing twice. And where is Tishbe? We don't know. We don't even quite know where he came from. We have ideas. And of course, we're told in our passage that it's somewhere in Gilead, but that's not very impressive because that means he came from the Transjordan. That means on the east side of the Jordan River, outside of what we might think of as the promised land proper. So that's not very impressive. That's not very prestigious. I don't think I'm exaggerating too, too much to maybe say that Elijah was a nobody from nowhere. He's a nobody. He has no great pedigree. We don't know anything about his father. No great accomplishments are listed. He just steps onto the scene, kind of like Melchizedek does in the days of Abraham, just coming on to the scene. And yet, doesn't that seem to fit perfectly with the way our God works? Paul in Corinthians says this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose that what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are. In fact, I think Elijah's interest in some way should remind us of our Savior's humble entrance. Do you remember how Isaiah puts it? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, he was esteemed not. And so this nobody steps onto the stage. And we want to, and I've already called him a hero this morning, right? Now I can just imagine that if you were to go to Elijah, and you were to to say to him, Elijah, I wow, your faith. And we're going to talk a lot about Elijah's faith as we goes on. I hope someday I could be like you. I hope I could grow and have, have faith like yours. I think Elijah would say, you're totally missing the point. You're missing the point. Don't look at me. Look at my great God. In fact, I think we see it even in Elijah's name. Elijah literally means my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh, steps onto the scene. We don't really need to know anything more about him. That's all we really need to know. My God is Yahweh, steps onto the scene. The one who believes and trusts in him and trusts his word. And so he goes to Ahab and he says in verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, when I read this, I couldn't help but think of Narnia. Is that odd? Um, Lying the Witch in the Wardrobe, there's that moment where there's kind of this wondering of the, the witch is kind of confused. Why would Aslan allow himself to be sacrificed as he was? And we read this. The witch knew the deep magic, but there was a magic still deeper that she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little bit farther back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read that there was a different incantation. Here's the picture 
wants to see. As Elijah steps on the scene, he knows of, quote unquote, a, a deeper magic that Ahab does not seem to be aware of. And what is that deeper magic? It's actually what Ahab should have been fully aware of. As the king of the Israelites, he should have known God's word. And if he had known God's word, what would he have known? We've already talked about it. He would have known the implications of rebuilding Jericho. If he had read God's word, he would have known what? He would have known the implications uh, of intermarriage and the consequences of it. If he had read God's word, he would have known the consequences of worshiping and serving other gods. We've already mentioned Deuteronomy. I'm going to mention it again. Deuteronomy is kind of like, it's the heartbeat of the Jewish people. It should have been. God was helping them to understand God's heart for them and what their heart was to look like for him. In Deuteronomy 11, we read this, take care, lest your heart be deceived. And you turn aside and you serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. What's going to happen? And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Do you see what's going on here? Elijah should know everything that's going on. He should be able to, if he were a student of God's word, he would have known how this would play out if he was going in the direction that he did. So either things have gotten so bad in Israel that the king, Ahab, has no knowledge of God's word, or he just plain doesn't care. And so Elijah steps on the scene. And he steps on the scene, I want us to think of it as a prosecutor in a courtroom. And he steps on the scene and he, he calls upon the Lord to keep his promise that we just read about in Deuteronomy, to shut up the heavens. We learn a little bit more about this in the book of James where we read about prayer. In the context of prayer, James says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Question for you. I just want you to think about this. You probably never. Does Elijah emerge onto the scene because God has called out to him and called him, come, I want you to go say this to Ahab. We don't see any evidences of that in our passage. Or does he come on the scene because he knows God's word? He knows God's word. He's laid God's word upon his heart. And he sees the way that the king is living and that the way that the king is leading Israel and the idolatry, and he's disgusted by it. And he calls out upon his great God to shut up the heavens, just like he promised. I think James helps us immensely to understand our passage in Kings. James kind of takes us behind the scenes In Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on James, he says this. He says, we are to envision Elijah taking God's covenant promise of judgment back to him in prayer and asking him to fulfill it. So the picture would be this. Maybe before Elijah ever went before Ahab, he goes to God in prayer. And he said, Lord, you have promised in your word, take care lest your heart be deceived. This is from Deuteronomy that we just read a moment ago. Take care lest you be received, eh, eh, deceived. And you turn aside and you serve other gods and worship. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens 
so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. And he cries out to God, now, O Lord, keep your covenant, fulfill your promises and act. Shut up the heavens. And after he's done praying, he steps before Ahab. And he boldly steps before him, trusting God's word. Trusting that that God will truly keep his promises. And he says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And as Ferguson says, Elijah's word was simply God's word, trusted in faith, God's promises claimed in prayer. Now, it'd be far easier to just talk about Elijah, you know, stepping on seeing God. You know, he hears the verbal words of God. This is what you're supposed to go do. This is what you're supposed to go say. But I think what we see here is precisely what James calls a prayer of faith. A prayer of faith. And if that's the case, this prayer of faith, it's not something that that we work up on our own, that we stir up through our emotions or, or whatever. Rather, it's bringing God's promises to him. Bringing God's word back to him as Elijah did. I think if we might learn to begin to do that, we might find our Prayer's changing a bit. Sometimes I feel like we pray and we just kind of throw as much stuff up on the wall and see what will stick. And I'm not saying it's not good to pray for things that we don't have evidence of in God's word that he is going to answer. That, that's not what I'm saying. I think sometimes so much of our prayers, are they're, 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 they're just throwing stuff up against the wall or trying to get God to fulfill promises that he has never made to us. How might our prayer lives begin to change? if we truly believe that he keeps his promises, that his word really is true, and that we can pray boldly to him because we know his will through his word, not through some mystical revelation that we may have or mystical experience, but through his word. The point here, to pray well, what do we need to be? We need to be good students of his word. Now, in the midst of Elijah coming on the scene, don't miss the incredible graciousness of this. Israel does not deserve Elijah. They do not deserve God's prophet coming before them and preaching God's word. Just as we don't deserve our Savior coming on the scene and bringing his word to us and living his life dying the incredible death, rising from the dead. We don't deserve any of that, yet our God is so gracious. And just in the provision of Elijah, we see the incredible graciousness of our great God. Now, Elijah says these words to Ahab. How does he escape with his life, you wonder, right? Was Ahab just so stunned that anyone would say these words that he's just able to kind of waltz off because Ahab's just sitting there with his mouth open? Or, or did he just laugh Elijah out of the room? A Tishbe from nowhere? What, what, what do you, yeah, right. Your God is going to keep Baal from bringing the rains. Yeah, 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 right. We'll, we'll see how this plays out, Elijah. And it's then that God steps in. And it's then that at least in scripture, we hear Elijah hearing God's word. And he says, depart from here 
turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook, Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from the brook that I have commanded the ravens to, to feed you there. And what a wonderful story of God's provision for his promise. He brings them, even through unclean animals, raven, bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening should remind us of the wilderness provision of the Israelites in the wilderness, right? Of the manna and the quail. He gets a double portion because he gets meat and bread in the morning and in the evening. But at the same time we think about this provision, let's be reminded, it's not like God put him up in the Ritz-Carlton, okay? This isn't necessarily a pleasant place. Yes, he's providing for him, but it doesn't mean that this is an easy life for him. This is the first, and we'll, we'll see another one. This is the first of Elijah's wilderness experiences. And it's right here at the very beginning of his ministry. And yes, I think we probably should be reminded of Jesus' wilderness experience right at the very beginning of his ministry as well. Now, as we think about this picture of Elijah standing before Ahab saying these words, I think our inclination is to think that Elijah like spouted these words and he's like standing like this. You know, he's just ready. He's going to say these words and then he just takes off sprinting, getting out of there as fast as he can. I don't know if that's the case at all. One commentator puts it this way. This is not what we're reading about. This is not Yahweh's prophetic protection program. You know what I mean? There's a theological reason for Elijah's withdrawal. God is making a clear statement to his people. He's going silent. God is acting as judgment against his people by withdrawing his prophetic spokesman. This chapter starts with God's withdrawing his word from his people. The speaking God stops speaking as he draws the attention of this nation to their perilous state. If this is correct, then not only are Elijah's words an act of judgment, but also his absence. For the first time in forever, isn't that a song? For the first, sorry. Um, for the first time in forever, uh, God's word was preached to Ahab. For the first time in forever, God's word was preached right there before Ahab. And then his word is withdrawn for three and a half years. I hope you maybe begin to sense a key theme here in this passage. The book of Kings, I think, is very concerned with God's people's need for his word. In verse 5, what do we read about Elijah? So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. The sad thing, I think, in our passage is that Israel, I think, missed the rain far more than they missed God's word being removed from them. I don't think they even noticed God's word being removed. They, they quickly noticed the rain being removed. Is that true of you? Imagine, would you be satisfied in your life if God provided for every one of your wants and needs? There's no lacking in your life. Can you imagine that? If he provided for all of that, would you even notice if he removed his word at the same time? Picture. In other words, do you want him for the rain or do you want him for his word? Remember Jesus' wilderness experience. He was not provided with bread and meat as Elijah was. 
He was instead left, left to fast for, for 40 days. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Do you remember Jesus' response? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes, and we shouldn't be surprised here, he quotes from Deuteronomy, that heart eat of the Jewish people. And he's reminding, in doing so, that this is a place where Moses is actually reminding the Israelites of their wilderness experience. Let me read kind of the context of what Jesus quotes from, Deuteronomy 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not, and he humbled you, and he let you hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God was teaching his people in their wilderness to what? To rely on his word, to trust his word, to cling to his word, just as we see Elijah in this passage clinging to the word of God, just as we are called to. As Paul tells us that all scripture is what? Breathed out by God. It's profitable for us. Profitable for us to to make us complete for for every good work. It it supplies us with all that we need. We cannot live without it. But sometimes we'd rather have his stuff. We'd rather have the rain than his word, I think. And if the Israelites, if if Ahab, in our passage, had, had really been paying attention to God's word, what would they have known? It's amazing as you just read this little passage, just everything that happens. If, if Ahab knew God's word, all of it can completely have been avoided. First Kings 8, Solomon says this, when the heaven is shut up, that's what we're reading about in our passage. Solomon's talking about it in advance, when the heaven is shut up. And there is no rain because they have sinned against you. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If Elijah, if the Israelites had been students of the word of God, what would they have known? They would have known God's call upon them in the midst of their idolatry to do what? To repent and to turn from their idols and turn to their great God who who wanted to forgive them. Implicit in this judgment, understand, is a God waiting for the Israelites to turn back to him. He would have loved nothing more than for Ahab to have fallen on his knees in repentance at that moment. I have no doubt he would have relented just as he did with the Ninevites, right? Jonah goes around and he says, everybody's going to die in a couple of days, right? And they repent, and what does he do? 
He relents. He is gracious. I don't think the calling for us today is really that drastically different as we face our, the idolatry of our own hearts. All these things that, that take our attention over him, the ways in which we would prefer the reign over his word. Now, in our day, we're, we're blessed in that we know more, don't we? We know how it is that a holy God can forgive sinful men and women who regularly find themselves running to idols. We know how that takes place. We know that the word of God himself came down to earth. We know that the word became flesh. The word became flesh. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. The glory is of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that a prophet far greater than Elijah has come. One whose prayers are so much greater even and so much more powerful than Elijah's. In Hebrews, we read this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Just as Elijah's word before Ahab should have been heard as a plea for repentance, so too do we this morning need to hear the call on our own lives to turn to Christ. To turn to Christ, this call that comes from the word himself. We need to hear the call of the word to turn from our sins, turn from the idolaters of our heart and and turn to him and rely. Learning to truly rely on his word. Learning to truly rely that he really does keep his promises. Every last one of them. And we can go to him with confidence. We can go to him repenting of our sins, repenting of the idolatry of our hearts. Knowing that the word of God is true. Knowing that he that he is the source, that he, Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, is the source of eternal salvation for all who believe in him. Elijah and the Israelites failed to listen to the word that was right there before them. Oh, let us embrace, let us long for his word. Let us hide it deep within our hearts. Trusting the one who is the source of eternal salvation, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, 
We thank you for your word provided to us this day. We thank you for, for the way that, that, that Elijah embraced your word and listened to it and, and followed it and, and sought after you. Oh, would you help us to learn to walk in your word in a similar way, truly trusting it and truly living out of it, boldly embracing your incredible promises, especially the incredible promise that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who has come to forgive our sins, to wash us clean, that we would be presented perfectly before you. Father, today, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we find in your word. Help us to believe it, not just now at this moment, but through every moment of the rest of this day and this week that is before us. We pray all of this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.